welcome to a podcast about murder. I'm Jem, and I'm here with Freya for the season two finale. How are you doing today? I'm doing all right. Yeah? (laughs) Hanging in there? Enjoying that life. So today we'll be discussing one of the most famous, and it goes without saying, tragic cases of France, the unsolved murder of Gregory Villemont. I would say that if you mention little Gregory to most French people, they will probably know who you're referring to, even if they're unfamiliar with the actual details of the case. You know, I was actually talking about this with some friends of mine and they were surprised to hear that the events happened over 30 years ago because it's still so talked about Mm. and it's really become a part of French culture. Wow. So our listeners may be familiar with this case because it was recently the subject of a Netflix documentary series called Who Killed Little Gregory? And I would definitely recommend that for people who would like to know more about this case. Yeah, I've just started watching it. I think I'm three episodes in. Um, Yeah, it's pretty good. I'd recommend it. I think it's good like because you see the people involved in the case and it's quite detailed. Yeah, and it gives a good overview and the interview, the main... of everything. Yeah. Before we get into the details of the case, I'd just like to warn our listeners that this case involves the murder of a very young child. And I won't really go into any gory details, but I know that this topic can be sensitive for many people. So if that's the case, then give this one a miss. Gregory Villemin was born to Jean-Marie and Christine Villemin on the 24th of August 1980 in the small town of L'Eponge-sur-Bologne in the northeast of France. At 9.15pm on the 16th of October 1984, his body was found in the Vologne River, his hands and feet bound, his woolen hat drawn over his face. He was only four years old. His expression was described as peaceful, as though he were merely sleeping rather than drowned. This case has taken on an almost legendary quality in France, notably due to the fact that it remains unsolved after over 35 years, and the many twists and turns that have occurred over the course of the investigation. As I said earlier, Gregory's parents are Jean-Marie and Christine. They met when they were relatively young. Jean-Marie was 18 and Christine almost 16 in 1976. They were relatively happy and very in love. They married a few years later with dreams of building their own house and having children. Of note, they married in relatively quiet circumstances in 1979, just the two of them and two friends, as they wanted to avoid family drama, which already gives you some indication of the general family vibe. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Which we'll get into in a bit. So they were overjoyed to welcome their son, Gregory, to the world in 1980. Unfortunately, their happiness would be cut short far too soon. By 1981, Jean-Marie and Christine were in a pretty good place. Jean-Marie had just been promoted, and that summer had bought some land overlooking Liponge with plans of building a family home there. However, it seems that some were jealous of their good fortune. A month after their phone line was installed, they began receiving threatening anonymous calls from an individual that came to be known as the Crow. Other members of the family had also received calls from this mysterious individual, although the main subjects of this harassment were Jean-Marie and Christine, and Jean-Marie's parents, Albert and Monique. Mm. At first, these calls were silent, and family members could just make out the sound of heavy breathing on the other end of the line. God, that's then a classic. The <laughs> it's so... I mean, this whole situation is like my worst nightmare. <laughs> of like, things that could actually happen to you. Yeah. And, like, especially because I guess back then you sort of had to answer the phone. Because I don't even know if they had, like, call or ID or anything like that. Hmm. No, I doubt it. Progressively, the Crow's calls became more menacing. They would play music, or they would even go so far as to threaten the Vilmars. 
As with many families, the Wienemals had their fair share of secrets, most notably the fact that Monique and Albert's eldest son, Jackie, wasn't actually Albert's biological son, but the result of a fling Monique had had prior to marrying him. Obviously, this wasn't a widely known fact, and in fact, many members of the family themselves weren't necessarily aware of this. So the fact that the crow was privy to this information and used it to sort of threaten them revealed that it had to be someone very close to the family, most likely a relative. Hmm... By 1982, Albert and Monique had grown so tired of the crow's non-stop verbal abuse that they reported it to the police. They opened an investigation but were unable to unmask the person behind the calls. Numerous family members would record their calls, or even try to ask questions to trip up the crow into revealing information that would unmask them, but all these attempts were unsuccessful. The crow's behaviour gradually became more daring and troubling. For example, one night when Jean-Marie was at work and Christine was home alone with two-year-old Gregory, a rock was thrown through one of the house's windows. On another occasion, their car tires were slashed. That's scary. The rock through the window is very intimidating. Yeah. And I think I read somewhere that one night she was there alone and someone was like trying to break into the house. I think maybe while she was taking a shower, which is just like the worst case, like all of your worst fears. I think that's definite. That's definitely one of my worst things. Like someone's trying to get into the house or someone's outside. Yeah. Like, yeah, that's definitely one of my fears, especially like if you're home alone. On the 4th of March, 1983, the first of four letters from the crow was slipped into the Villemal's shutters. This letter contained numerous spelling errors, probably done intentionally to confuse investigators, and was written entirely in capitals. Slip through the shutters is weird. (laughs) Well, it's like, it means you have to get so close to the house, though. Mm. But yeah, so it obviously shows the sort of boldness of this individual. Yeah, definitely. And I assume this was also in, like, plain, like, like, broad daylight. So this letter read, Je vous ferai la peau à la famille Villemain which translates to, I'm going to make you pay, Villemar family. It's pretty direct. (laughs) Um, There's no messing around in that message. Yeah. Two more letters were sent to Albert and Monique in April and May. In the third letter, the crow explicitly threatened Gregory. It's so weird, like, to be specifically threatening somebody's child who just, like, literally can't possibly have done anything relevant. I really have trouble wrapping my mind around the sort of motive i mean yeah i understand that it's like spurned by this jealousy that's sort of gone out of control but i really don't understand why it's so focused on this child who literally has nothing to do with it it's so bizarre because it's like god what because he got a good job i mean maybe i'm not understanding the level of difference in class between like once he'd got that job Um, how different his class was to the others. I think it is quite a big deal for the region to have slightly more money than the average person because it suddenly puts you in an entirely different class where you can afford... Like, they were thinking of buying a second car, which is quite Mm. a big thing, and he would buy Christine, like, fancy coats. Envy can drive people, like, pretty crazy, but it seems like such a small thing to end the life of a child over there has to be something else running through underneath the crow also continued their phone calls trying to destabilize jean-marie with increasingly disturbing threats 
even going so far as to imply that they had been watching Christine alone at home and would have raped her if they had had the chance. God. Not wanting to... Yeah. And so it's like a really horrible thing and Jean-Marie sort of had to pretend that he wasn't bothered by that because Mm. he didn't want to give in to this sort of game. However, on one occasion, the crow threatened to harm Gregory and Jean-Marie couldn't help but react, if you lay a finger on my son, I'll kill you. So unfortunately, this meant that the crow knew exactly where to strike to hurt him the most. Right. It's not that he didn't want to protect Christine. It's just that, like, you know, when you go after someone's kid, you go after, like, their heart and soul is, like, you know, Especially, I mean, he was so close to Gregory. Yeah. Like, he was apparently quite a doting father. Mm-hmm. Not to say that he did, he wasn't close to his wife, but I mean... Yeah, but I guess it's, it's, like, a it's just a different relationship, isn't it, in a way? Yeah, because I guess it sort of underlines the point that Gregory is a completely defenceless individual. He's a child. For a while, the call stopped. There would be one more on the 8th of March, 1984, to Jean-Marie's sister-in-law, Lillian, who, over the course of their conversation, asked the crow to not do them any harm. Them being, I think, her and her husband. Right. The crow assured her, I'm only going to hurt the boss. The boss was the crow's term for Jean-Marie because he'd been promoted and this was obviously a, a point of jealousy. Oh, uh, that gives me two things I want to bring up. One thing yeah. that I want to bring up is, um, it's like chief, isn't it? The word. Yeah, the yeah. chief. Um, but I didn't I know it on the documentary. Yeah, it's chief, but like... Which it sounds better in English, it makes more sense. But in French, it has the connotation of being someone who's in charge, like your superior. Right. And the other thing is that in the documentary, they refer to the crow as the raven. Do they? In the subtitles? No. Oh. Oh, did you watch it in French? Yeah. Okay, because, like, this, I didn't choose this or anything, but it's dubbed over in English. Oh, but I guess because maybe the crow is a reference to a film and maybe that film translated into English is Raven. Is Raven. I don't know. I think Gobu can be used for both, but I'm, I don't know if we distinguish a Raven in, in French. I'm checking that now. Yeah, the, apparent, according to Wikipedia, uh, there is no consistent distinction between crows and ravens. So... What at all? Which I I I didn't know that. At all. That's, <laughs> I think that's it depends bizarre. on their size, and crows are smaller. So hang on, a raven and a crow are the same species of animal. Basically, that's I guess. fascinating. I had no idea. I thought they were just <laughs> different things. But I thought that too, and I assumed like ravens were like much bigger, which that's they are. Apparently, exactly that's exactly what I assumed. So it, so what you're, what you're saying is a raven is a big crow, basically. I mean, I'm no expert. That's really interesting. (laughs) I've learned something new today. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway. But yeah, I guess the raven. Raven sounds cooler than crow. But I don't... I don't don't agree with that. I think the crow sounds sounds scarier. I think it's more sinister. I mean, the raven, like in English, we also have the Edgar Allan Poe kind of connotation with raven which i guess which is sort of more poetic more spooky um, yeah because that's obviously a spooky story but then but then i find crow sounds scarier anyway (laughs) (laughs) this is (laughs) this is off track a little bit but yeah ravens Um, crows 
The Crow boasted that they would kill both Jean-Marie and his wife, and even go to their funerals, which shows how assured they were that they wouldn't be uncovered as the killer. Um, one thing I haven't written in my notes, but I think I should point out, because I talk about um, Lillian's father a bit later, is that they said that Lillian and Jackie would go down as the ones responsible for this crime, which I find kind of random and they as in the crow weird yeah like they basically the crow was i think the crow was like i'm going to kill jean-marie and his wife and you're going to be blamed for this crime and i'm going to get away with it weird which is weird especially um we'll get into this when i when it comes up again but someone points the finger specifically at lillian and jackie as lillian and jackie weren't on speaking terms with jean-marie and christine they weren't informed of this call and that they weren't that they were having some kind of issues with each other is not a great sign. I don't think so, but I think it's like there's a lot of tension and yeah uh, suspicion because obviously they know that this crow is someone very close to them and they don't know who mm. it is. And I think Jean Marie has had suspicions concerning Lillian's father before, and because Jackie being the um, the bastard. Yeah. is named by the crow is like such a central figure somehow that maybe there's a lot of suspicion tied to that and how involved he may be on tuesday the 16th of october 1984 christine picked gregory up from his nannies around 4 55 they returned home she put a wool hat on gregory who wanted to play with his toy trucks in the pile of gravel in front of his house during this time she did some ironing listening to the radio at quite a loud volume, reportedly. She kept the shutters closed. Around 5.20, she went outside to ask Gregory to come in. There was no response. Worried, she got her car and immediately started her search for her son, asking neighbours for help, although no one reported having seen the boy. The police were alerted around 5.50. Gregory's body was found several hours later, around 9.15, in the Vologne River, near the town of Dossel, around seven kilometres from Lepange. His wrists and feet were bound with string, which was also tied around his neck. His woolen hat was drawn over his eyes. When it was pulled back, it revealed what seemed to be the peaceful face of a sleeping child, rather than the gruesome truth that he had been drowned. The next day, the Villemars would receive a last letter from the crow. The postage stamp indicated that it had been sent at 5.15 on the day of the murder. It read, J'espère que tu mourras de chagrin, le chef. Ce n'est pas ton argent qui pourra te redonner ton fils. Voilà ma vengeance, pauvre con. This roughly translates as, I hope you die of grief. Your money won't bring your son back. This is my revenge, poor idiot. <laughs> so horrible. <laughs> it's just so I mean, you over get the the, all of it is callous, and then you get at the end, it's just like, poor idiot. It's like, so cruel. You couldn't get more horrible. Yeah. Ugh. But it's so, like, um, crude, in a way. That's exactly what that's exactly what i'm thinking it's just like thoughtless really yeah it's not even like a cool sort of like well penned letter that sort of proves that you've gotten away with something it, it has no sophistication to it yeah not that that would be better but it's no, just it wouldn't weird be that better. it's so it just gives yeah. you an idea about the killer i think yeah um or at least the time they had available maybe to prepare this i don't yeah. know yeah that's a good point you know, I th I feel like the rest of everything has been fairly sophisticated in in its intimidation sort of tactics. It's like building mm. up kind of thing. Um, you know, 
more and more things it seems sophisticated there and then you end on this like thing almost seems rushed yeah but that's a good point about the time because they got home around 4 55 and this letter was sent at 5 15 so 20 minutes after they had returned home which isn't a lot of time unless they already had the letter ready i guess but yeah Seems like a really close window for all this stuff to happen. Mm. Over the course of the investigation, an extremely detailed timeline was constructed, although this meticulous work would only be done years later. Originally, all investigators had to go on were Christine's approximative timeline, the time of the discovery of the body, and two reported incidents of the crow. The letter, timestamped 5.15, and a call that Michel Villemar, Jean-Marie's older brother, received around 5.30, I'm calling you because they're not answering next door. This is referring to Albert and Monique. I've taken my revenge on the boss, and I've kidnapped his son. I strangled him and threw him in the Vologne. His mother is out looking for him now, but she won't find him. My revenge is done. That one is slightly more sophisticated, don't you think? I find the wording more sophisticated. I don't know if it's it's just... It's almost like they're written by two different people. That is an interesting point that we will touch on. But also, they make a point of saying that it's badly written on purpose to sort of confuse investigators. Physically or...? Well, the first one they got was physically. Like, it was written in all caps, and then they misspelled the name. actually, when I was watching the documentary, I was thinking, it's very bizarre handwriting with the Cs, like like four sides of a square. You know, it's it's all very blocky and, and weird. I've never seen any writing like it in my life. I guess That's they the probably first did one. that on purpose. Yeah, and it, it misspells the Villemar name, which is like, I think it has to be done on purpose because if you're so obsessed with these people that mm. you want to kill them, you probably know how to spell their name. Especially if you are somehow related to them. Yeah, it's probably just to sort of create confusion. Um, but then this one has different handwriting to the first one. Which is interesting too. That is interesting. So it's important to underline two things here. That the crow is clearly responsible for Gregory's murder. And to this day the crow has not been identified. I don't think I'm going out too far on a limb to say that the crow is responsible for his murder. I think most people (laughs) will agree with me there. (laughs) I think so. Well, yeah, whoever they are, they're either responsible or they're part of it. Mm. Oh, there's there's a bloody plane going over again. Again. I mean, who's flying? Like, where are you going? (laughs) We're on (laughs) lockdown. You can't just be going to Marbella. (laughs) You as a police chief. No, don't go to Marbella. (laughs) Please. Guys. Come on. (laughs) Help me out here. The case of Gregory's murder was given to Judge Jean-Michel Lambert on the 17th of October, 1984. this guy. Yeah, this guy. Um, I don't. I. I mean, I don't want to trash talk him too much, but at the same time, like, this guy. Right for it. (laughs) (laughs) He's got it coming a little bit. Yeah. So we'll get into this a bit more later on. But this judge didn't handle the situation, the case, very well, and I think he's largely responsible for how a number of events turned out. Mm. Um, and it has to be said that he was relatively young and he kind of enjoyed the sort of fame and media attention that came with the case 
And I think in some instances, this would lead him to reveal things to the press that he absolutely should not have. And that allowed mm. things to spin out of control. And before we go on further, just to establish the correlation here I, is like the judge is sort of like the prosecutor role. Right, yeah. For in France. So yeah. just to sort of parallel that for um, different people, because I know it doesn't work exactly that. Yeah, that name doesn't work exactly like that in the UK, and I know it doesn't. Or in, in the US. Yeah. Yeah. So just I think it's that yeah. Out. So obviously he's a lot more involved than a judge would be in a case in right. Yeah. He's any more other like, country, yeah, the, the sort of lead prosecutor on the case. Yeah, he's in charge of leading the investigation, determining what course of action to take, and sort of gathering all the evidence and making a decision. Gregory's autopsy was performed the day after his murder, on the 17th of October. It didn't turn up much. There was practically no bruising, just a very small one on his head. There were no traces of evidence on his clothes. Just one detail stood out. There were signs that he had foamed at the mouth, and his lungs showed clear signs of asphyxiation by drowning, although there was very little water in his lungs. There was no sign of alcohol in his blood, or any traces of adrenaline, which is really interesting because that shows that he probably wasn't scared. And I didn't know that that could actually be used as an indicator of that, but it makes sense. Yeah, this is a really interesting thing um, because, like, I've never heard of that being referred to in any case before ever. The expression, mm. uh, it's not something that I've ever heard. Me um, neither. And it's funny that that was... At all. <laughs> but yeah. now that I'm thinking about it, it's kind of, it's very French because <laughs> yeah. it's all about, like, the emotions and the drama. <laughs> the situation well we can't tell whether there was alcohol in his blood but he wasn't scared yeah. <laughs> it's like okay it's like, like the contrast between that information and the absolute lack of like a full toxicology <laughs> report yeah. it's just so funny to me so no yeah no toxicology report. yeah that's pretty nice. i was gonna say that the blood sample they took from him wasn't enough to do a full toxicology report was it which is a major issue, obviously. Um, so there could have been things present in his blood that we'll just never know about. It's so, so that's bizarre. obviously... It seems so, like... Like, even for the... I know this is the 80s. And well, it's like... We're talking about not... I mean, we're probably talking about a police uh, district that isn't super used to a case like yeah. this, for sure. But it's still, like, you'd think you would be doing those basic things. So that's obviously a main point of criticism about this investigation. The coroner's report was extremely vague and couldn't determine whether Gregory had been drowned prior to being thrown into the river, for instance, in a bathtub. Um, he couldn't say whether he was dead prior to being placed in the river or whether he had been tied up before or after his death. But that's and like, crazy. I know that, But I know that being in the water can, like, muddle the details a bit yeah but i know that in like the thir the 30s or 40s they were able to determine just by the bruising or the blood flow how long a person had been tied up tied up for exactly like we've done a case yeah um, in episode four of the last season i think it was episode four where in the and it was wartime wartime britain yeah. <laughs> in like the 40s <laughs> and they were able to determine um you know that someone had been um bound while they were alive and and all these different things like that about a body that had, that had been sitting in water so it's the same 
I mean, it's not exactly yeah. the same case, obviously, but like it's the same basic um, thing that's happened to the body. And they could determine all of these things 40 years before this case. It just seems bizarre, like the level of negligence. <laughs> Well, that's why, like, I don't have the details on how the autopsy was done, because I can't remember. They they address it in the documentary, but I can't remember. Mm. But it just seems so shoddy to me, and I don't know why. A handwriting specialist was brought in to analyse the Crow's handwritten notes. These notes would cause a lot of contention over the years, as multiple experts would come up with multiple suspects. But the first person thought to be the author of these notes was Roger Jaquel, Lillian Vilma's father. He, however, had a solid alibi for the time of the murder. Hmm. But that's so, it's interesting coming back to the, the phone call made to them that would sort of place blame on them. I keep forgetting about these people, actually, because they keep yeah. coming up. And they come up, but they're not about them. too central to it, in a way. Like, because there's so much focus on other members of the family, hmm. we tend to forget these ones. Personally, I don't think they killed Gregory but I don't know if they were somehow involved in the crow scheme yeah or at least they know something more than they're letting on I would think yeah on the 18th of October 140 people who were close to the Villemars were made to submit handwriting samples even copying out the last letter from the crow so I'm just going to go through some of the key events of the investigation um, which we can discuss as we go along on the 17th of October, some car tyre tracks were found on a site that was proposed as the potential murder scene between Dossel and Desimon, as well as a woman's footprint. On the 22nd, the first sketch of the potential murderer was drawn, using eyewitness accounts of a strange man who had been hanging around the post office on the evening of the crime. However, a man came forward, having recognised himself, and was released without further questioning. On the same day, the 22nd, in the evening, police received a call from an, from an anonymous witness, pointing them in the direction of Lillian and Jackie Vilma. So again, they're, they're coming up. Yeah. These two were brought in for questioning, but released. The anonymous caller was revealed to be Marie-Ange Laroche, wife of Bernard Laroche, a close childhood friend of Jean-Marie's. So she was brought in for questioning, and then suspicions turned to her husband, Bernard, they made him submit handwriting samples and questioned him about his whereabouts on the 16th. On the 25th of October, police tried to reconstruct the crime using a mannequin, which allowed them to determine that the supposed crime scene was not where they had originally thought, but by the Dossel fire station. And it's already like so much late, so much after the actual murder that I imagine not knowing where the sort of site of this crime is means that they've lost a lot of evidence already. Oh, definitely. Yeah. On the 26th, another sketch was drawn using eyewitness accounts of patrons of a cafe in Dossel, situated only a few metres away from the potential crime scene. This man was described as being younger than the first, with a round face and large sideburns, not dissimilar to Bernard Laroche. A few days later, on the 30th, a handwriting expert designated Bernard as a potential crow. He wasn't... He didn't confirm this... But Bernard and Mariange were immediately brought into custody and questioned. However, their alibis seemed solid and they were released the following day. Mariange had been at work and Bernard had been with a co-worker in the afternoon and then gone to his aunt's house, where his sister-in-law, Muriel Boll, was staying. Hmm. To confirm Bernard's alibi, police brought in 15-year-old Muriel Boll for questioning. 
Although her original account seemed to confirm what Bernard had said, police picked up on several inconsistencies. For instance, Bernard said that Muriel was already at his aunt's house when he arrived, whereas Muriel stated the opposite. On top of this, several classmates stated that they hadn't seen her getting on the school bus that day, but getting into a car, whose description matched Bernard's, around five o'clock. When confronted with these accounts, Muriel's story quickly changed. She told police that Bernard had picked her up from school with his four-year-old son, Sebastian, in the back, and driven to a house in Lepange. There, he picked up another four-year-old boy, later identified as Gregory. He then drove them to Dossel and got out of the car with Gregory, returned without him. She signed a statement attesting to this and reiterated her testimony before Judge Lambert on the 5th of November. So this is one of those instances I mentioned earlier where this judge handled the situation very poorly. He sent Muriel back to her family home. So she lives... I don't know if her sister lives there, but they all sort of live nearby in any case. Um, so he sent her back to her home instead of placing her in some kind of like protective custody. He arrested Bernard immediately without even having a full case against him that afternoon. <sighs> so the handwriting expert hasn't even given in like an official report. All he has is Muriel's testimony, basically. Um, the media was so involved in this case that they were even there to film his arrest. And during an interview, Judge Lambert basically revealed that Muriel was his key witness. Uh, and I've seen this video as well. Yeah. Of him like just bumbling he's so, through with like and just he's answering so smug every about question it in a way. with no Yeah, with like no consideration of like, oh maybe I should hold something back. He's just like blah, 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 blah. Yeah. <laughs> Any he's more questions? Like, <laughs> it's like Jesus. But Christ. even when he does try to have some kind of restraint, literally all they have to do is push him a tiny bit and he'll be like that's exactly what I was just gonna say. It's like they ask him a question. He's like, "Oh, I can't say that." And then, yeah. and then they just ask him again, and he goes, "Well, it's this." <laughs> it's like, it's like, come on, man, <laughs> just not try a little bit. I mean, I can relate uh, to like being like the pressure of of any situation will make me just talk. Yeah, no, <laughs> until I I've talked myself that, into like, a hole. So I yeah. guess I guess I can relate to it. But then again, I'm not a prosecutor. <laughs> <laughs> it feels like there's a lot more on the line than like my normal conversations. The next day, Muriel recanted her testimony. She explained that she had been forced by police to testify against her brother-in-law, who was completely innocent. She made this statement to the press on camera. Um, I don't know. Have you seen this interview? Um, I've seen the bit where she's recanting yeah. the statement. And I just so, thought she looks so intimidated by the whole yeah. thing. And it's so obvious that yeah. she was telling the truth before, even though she's saying well, she's telling the truth now. At least that's just yeah. what I thought. To me, you can see her family in the background watching her give this interview as well, which mm. also is like shows how oppressive the sort of situation is definitely um she won't meet anyone's eyes and she only repeats the same sort of prepared statements yeah as if rehearsing a script in my mind yeah many people speculate that she was beaten by her family and forced to change her statements although of course muriel has never confirmed this and this is one of the ongoing unsolved elements of this case the question of whether you know her original statement was true or this one um in fact, one of like a cousin of hers later came forward saying that he, like, like he was like, yeah, she was beaten. I can attest to that. And it was a whole point of contention where 
she said that he was lying. That's crazy. So what I do find interesting, though, is that not far from the supposed scene of the crime, the one near the fire station, officers found an empty insulin syringe. And investigators then hypothesized that insulin could have been used to put Gregory into a hypoglycemic coma, which would explain why he appeared so peaceful. And the lack of adrenaline, I guess. Yeah. Um, of note, Muriel's mother was diabetic, and Muriel was said to have known how to help her mother with her injections. Mm. However, as... Uh, a proper toxicology report was never done on Gregory and there were no fingerprints on the syringe. <sighs> There's no way to know if this is relevant in any way whatsoever. God. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so frustrating. I feel like that's just such a perfect piece of puzzle that is yeah. just now soggy and can never be put in the right place yeah. because of just basic stuff not being done. I mean, were there... Was there literally any anyone else connected to them who was diabetic? I don't think so. But then I'm, I imagine there's more than one diabetic person in the region. I mean, obviously, obviously, I mean, that would go a long ways to sort of, yeah. like, if you could say, because, you know, diabetes isn't the rarest illness, but it also no. isn't super common, I would say. No. So, like, if you find a syringe of insulin on the ground... And you can definitively say that, like, two people in the mm. nearest 200 miles, let's say, are yeah. diabetic. Then it's but, pretty, you know, you know it you could, could be say. someone threw it out of a car. Obviously, you know I mean? it could be any of those things. But I'm just kind of saying the likelihoods then become yeah. very strong that it's one of those two people, yeah. let's say. Naturally, Jean-Marie was devastated to learn that Bernard Roche was considered the prime suspect in his son's murder. The two were cousins and had grown up together as very close friends. Their two sons were even the same age. It seemed impossible to believe that Bernard could be responsible for such a murder. And I can't imagine the sense of betrayal he must have felt. Yeah. But that's also why people will defend him and say he couldn't have done this. Because he's close to Jean-Marie. They're literally, they were best friends when they were teenagers. And they have sons who are the same age. Well, and, I, yeah, and people but... will say he can't have killed a four-year-old because he had one. Yeah, but, you know, <laughs> we know that people are capable of terrible things. Yeah. Just because it's really difficult to grasp doesn't mean it can't happen. It's not impossible by any stretch of the imagination. In any case, Judge Lambert didn't seem too concerned by Muriel's retractions and was very confident in the other pieces of evidence making up his case. The most important of which was a letter from the crow that seemed to have an imprint of Bernard's initials on it. However, just to really demonstrate the complete, like, bumbling way in which this case was handled, this letter was lost. For fuck's sake, it was lost. <laughs> just, like, like, I don't even know how this could yeah, happen. You have just key pieces of evidence, you're like, whoops, I guess I left that on the counter with the coffee and someone else picked it up. Like, what the hell? How do you... <sighs> so many pieces of evidence that would have served to prove Bernard's guilt were actually dismissed from the case, and without Muriel's testimony, there was no legal reason to keep Bernard in prison. As such, Judge Lambert decided to release Bernard from prison against the advice of the French equivalent of the Attorney General. Um, on February 4th, 1985. Jean-Marie then vowed to kill Bernard Laroche in front of journalists to avenge his son. 
As you would. Which is like, yeah. I mean, I understand that. I don't understand how no one was like, well, maybe we should do something to stop that from happening. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yeah, it's just you laugh because it's so ridiculous. So although Bernard tried to go back to a normal life, Jean-Marie and Christine tried to get him to do a lie detector, although legally there was no way they could force him to take one. And uh, Marie-Ange, Bernard's wife, asked for police protection and none was provided because officially he was no longer like involved in this case. So they couldn't justify putting police... Stupid. (laughs) So journalists and police alike, including police chief Etienne Sesma, were aware of Jean-Marie's intentions to kill Laroche, which he sort of reiterated on numerous occasions. But nothing official was ever put in place to stop him. So I think they would sort of like have these conversations with him where they would talk him out of it and hope that that was the end of it. But that's all they really did. Mm. When the results of the handwriting analyses came back and steered the case in an entirely new direction, it may have been too much for Jean-Marie to handle. Not to mention the fact that Christine was in hospital at the time, perhaps unable to talk him out of it. On the 29th of March, 1985, as Bernard Laroche was making his way home with his wife and son, Jean-Marie shot him down with a hunting rifle. Some of Bernard's last words were, reportedly, I didn't kill your kid. Jean-Marie Villemain was arrested that very day and sentenced to five years in prison. Cool. Five years. Five years seems like not very much, though. (laughs) I don't... I think it was like a temporary sentence, because then they do a proper trial and he's retried for this right but i'm not too clear on that exactly so i know you may be wondering who the handwriting experts had named their prime suspect a few days prior to laroche's murder Mm. and these expert accounts all tended to point in the direction of christine gregory's mum which radically changed her status in the case from victim to perpetrator Let me try again. Ooh. Oh no, that's really just like weird. Hang on. Ooh. There we go. That's the one. (laughs) So, from the beginning of this case, there had been people who had suspected Christine of being somehow involved in her son's murder. I mean, she was the last person to see him alive, which is like usually the first suspect in a murder. Hmm. Numerous journalists jumped at the idea of something so scandalous as infanticide, criticising her reaction at Gregory's funeral, which was... She just cried and then fainted, which is which I don't think is that abnormal. I'm, but they, I'm not on the... Like, I never think you can judge too much of a person's actions in the face of a trauma, because yeah. everyone reacts differently to different circumstances. Um, but I did watch... I did see the footage of her at the funeral and I didn't yeah. think it was... I actually didn't think it was over the top. I didn't Weirdly. find it that over the top. I, I mean, like, when, like, she's when not you mentioned like it to me before... She's not, screaming and fainting in a very dramatic way. She's sort of leaning on her husband and... I thought it looked very natural. It's very traumatic to bury yeah. your, your tiny child. <laughs> yeah. you know like i can't I mean, say it any other way it's horrible to have to do that and she is acting like she's experiencing a horrible situation yeah it's only in comparison to the solemnness of the others that she seems yeah. out of you know unusual but i don't actually well, think her behavior is out of the question it's like she's devastated the thing is, 
the, her reaction is criticized as being like over the top and fake. But I feel like if she had been really stoic, then that would have been like, well, she's so cold hearted. She didn't yeah, love exactly. her child. I, I kind of feel like it's, I feel like a lot of the time mothers get this type of thing in the way that fathers mm. don't always get. Like, I feel like it's a, I feel like it's a thing. I feel like it's a, like their reactions are always like scrutinized. If, if she's, yeah. if she's cold, if she's over the top, if she's too emotional, yeah. if she's not emotional enough, then it's all like, you know, brought into yeah. question. Anyway. So there was a lot of slander in the papers and all of her actions were scrutinized and criticized by the press Although for a long time there wasn't any formal evidence against her. So the thought that the handwriting analysis pointed to her being the crow started a media storm. She was immediately villainized by the press. She was taken in in July 1985 and charged with the murder of her child. Mm. Several women who later came to be known as the post office girls claimed to have seen Christine posting a letter at the time the crow had sent the letter regarding Gregory's murder. However, these witnesses were dismissed relatively quickly as the clothes they described Christine in were ones that she had worn the day before the murder. I mean, she was quite open about having been to the post office the day before. So although she was pregnant at the time, she went on a hunger strike in prison to protest these ridiculous accusations before eventually being freed due to a lack of evidence and no proof of a clear motive for the murder. I don't see, I don't see it, this being no. a credible theory. In July 1985, following her arrest, a famous article was published written by Marguerite Durat, entitled Sublime, forcément sublime, Christine V. Um, in this article, the author defends Christine's supposed infanticide, justifying it with some really weird, like, pseudo-feminist ideals. Um, and apparently, there was the original draft was a lot more extreme, and it even implied that <sighs> It's a mother's right as the giver of life to take away a child's life. Oh my god. <laughs> like, this woman is so bizarre. But it's written in a really weird way, which is obviously, like, fictional to me. But it's it was presented as, like, proper journalism. <laughs> and I think shaped a lot of people's opinions on this. But she sort so of weird. writes it in a way where she's like, I walk up to the house, the shutters are closed, and I know that she's in there killing Gregory. And it's like, what? Wait, from her <laughs> perspective? That's yeah. even weirder. <laughs> it's so bizarre. And she never met Christine. Mm. She doesn't weird. know her. So weird. It's just a really weird article. Yeah. Christine was eventually found innocent and cleared of all charges in 1993. A key element in her being acquitted were multiple eyewitness accounts stating that they had actually seen two people who resembled Bernard and Muriel in a car heading towards the Villemar house around the time of the abduction. These witnesses would only come forward years after the murder. Hmm. So, Quite a lot of thanks good for that. that. Is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Although it seems undeniable that Bernard Laroche participated in the kidnapping, it is hard to say to what extent he was involved in the murder of Gregory, and to this day, neither his guilt nor his innocence have officially been proclaimed. As technology progressed, a few more attempts were made to uncover new information. For instance, experts tried to analyse the DNA on the back of a stamp used to send one of the Crow's letters to Jean-Marie's father. By carefully analysing recordings of calls made by the Crow, however, experts were able to determine that there were at least two voices on the recording a man and a woman. Yeah. This new information put everything in a new light. It wasn't just the simple actions of an individual, but a group effort, and, even more disturbingly, a family affair. 
Yeah, I remember um, like from the recordings that I've heard, I think um, like I think I can tell when there's a woman who's trying to lower her voice. Yeah, that's to sound the thing. Like so a me, man. I, that's what I think like I'm no expert, but the recordings I've heard to me sound more feminine than masculine. Yeah, that's what I thought as well. They sound it sounds like a woman trying to lower her voice. Um, yeah in order to disguise it that's what i thought yeah um so the fact that it's multiple people then puts everything in a new light where the timeline makes sense because it was such it was so short that it makes sense that it would be perhaps bernard kidnapping gregory and passing him on to someone else while Mm. someone else could post the letter it's funny how something that um makes makes things make more sense also makes less sense because it's just like the more people that are involved it's almost like the less likely it is but then at the same time well that's it's not possible without multiple people i don't know it's so bizarre well it has to be multiple people but then that means that multiple people got together and were like yep we need to murder this child that makes sense just yeah it's just crazy so going back to 1987 Judge Maurice Simon took over the case from Judge Lambert, who thought the investigation was over. He believed Christine to be the killer. Mm. So he was like, job done. (laughs) I really like Judge Simon, though. He did a really good job, you know, trying his best to redo the whole investigation. He spent days with the police testing how fast Christine would have had to be driving in order to fit the timeline of the murder. Um, He recreated the crime scene from photos. So he really did his best with what he had. Hmm. He took very detailed notes on his thoughts and hypotheses in his private diaries. Unfortunately, and this is really where, to me, the case starts to seem a bit cursed, he had a heart attack in 1990, which meant that he was in a coma for three days, and when he woke up, he remembered absolutely nothing about this case. It's so bizarre. (laughs) Like, it really does seem like like some divine intervention or something. Yeah. So it's hard to say whether or not he would have been able to solve this case if not for these unfortunate health issues. Yeah. In 2016, his diaries were brought in by his son. And examining his private thoughts on the case allowed investigators to confirm their own hypotheses based on handwriting analyses, knowing that they were now looking for multiple crows rather than a single individual. Judge Simon's hypothesis was that the killer had to be a member of one of the three following groups. Bernard Laroche and his family, Michel Villemin and his wife Ginette, so this is Jean-Marie's older brother and sister-in-law, and Marcel Jacob and his wife Jacqueline, this is Jean-Marie's maternal uncle. On the 14th of June 2017, 33 years after the murder of Gregory had taken place, Marcel and Jacqueline Jacob, as well as Ginette Villemin, were detained in police custody for questioning. Michel had died seven years prior. Gregory's 80-year-old grandparents, Albert and Monique, were also brought in to be questioned as witnesses. Muriel was brought in to provide a DNA sample. Marcel, Jacqueline and Ginette all invoked the right to remain silent. Investigators were almost certain that Jacqueline's handwriting matched the crows. On top of this, the couple's whereabouts on the day of the murder were hard to confirm. I always think when people (laughs) invoke their right to remain silent or plead the fifth, Mm. as it's called in America... That, yeah. that is always super like 
it's like saying you did it it's like saying you know something it's like I definitely know something I'm just not saying I do get that and I do perceive it that way too however that is the smartest thing to do regardless of how involved you are in a crime I guess so yeah no I mean it's smarter to not say anything that could be used against you if you feel like I someone's agree building with that, but if you if you have nothing, if there is nothing, then again, I guess innocent people do get put away. Maybe the crow isn't entirely responsible for this. So maybe it's mm. like she wrote the letters and she knows that she's the crow. However, she didn't kill him, but she knows right. that she can't admit one without people suspecting her yeah. of the other. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess it's the same thing I w- I said um, about that I say about lie detectors. Bernard refused a lie detector, but that doesn't... I don't know what you think about this. Um, when So the thing about lie detectors is, you know, they aren't 100% yeah. accurate by any means. And some would put their accuracy at far lower than, like, yeah. than is reasonable. And that's the reason why they're not used. Because of that, if I was suspected of something... It's not in my interest to take a lie detector mm. because without it, it's there's nothing extra on me. Obviously, it yeah. seems we have the social uh, suspicion of me turning it down, but you have nothing extra on me. I can mm. only lose by taking it. Yeah, because I could get a false positive. Yeah, exactly. So the real thing is like, even if a person's innocent, I guess I would advise that nobody should ever take yeah. one. I think so. Refusing one, I don't think, is necessarily a sign of guilt, because I think I would refuse one due to the fact that I don't think it Mm. can help me in any way. (laughs) I can only lose from taking it. The use of the word "boss" to refer to Jean Marie in the Crow's calls and letters was also said to have been used by Marcel in an altercation with Jean Marie, during which he stated, "I don't shake hands with a boss." Isn't there also the one, I don't know if you mentioned this before, in, isn't there also someone else who refers to, who comes into his house and um, yeah. when he has this new couch yeah, that's and refers to, um, ref- and says about the couch, it's something only a boss would have or something like that. Yeah. I think that's Michel, his brother. Right. Who was so very I, jealous so of him it, anyway. It kind of seems like this is all running in the, the you know, it's everyone. Yeah. Well, that's what the Judge Simon suspected Michel was involved. Yeah. And Michel, as you may recall, said that he had received a call from the crow at 530. Mm. However, he was the only one who heard this. He didn't record it. So it's hard to say whether he even did receive a call or if he's just adding to a timeline to sort of blur the perception of events. Yeah, and make it look like he's part of the victims rather than the... Yeah. Yeah, well, I couldn't have been involved because I was at home receiving a call. And they were calling me, you know. Yeah. Yeah. But he is quite an erratic individual and very jealous of his brother's success. Mm. And very jealous and quite proud of the fact that uh, his... The eldest brother, Jackie, being a bastard meant that he was the eldest child. Oh. <laughs> like, legitimately. It's, like, such a weird thing. But anyway. Marcel and Jacqueline's only child, Valerie, informed police that her parents had had a weird obsession with the Villemarin grandparents, Albert and Monique. So, Marcel is Monique's brother. Uh-huh. 
they lived um, just above them and would often use binoculars to spy on them from the house. Which is, yeah, I would say that's weird. It's pretty, that's pretty <laughs> weird. It's hard to dispute um, the weirdness of that. Valerie also stated that her father, Marcel, had called her several times during the day of the murder, anxiously asking for updates on the situation. Mm-hmm. I guess when at that point it was considered to be an abduction, yeah. not a murder. Which is kind of weird because I guess I don't think he was that close to Gregory. Okay. So you would be like, why is my dad calling me up, harassing me about, like, my cousin? However, due to a lack of physical evidence and apparently irrefutable alibis for the day of the crime, this is according to their lawyers, um, and also goes against the previous statement I made where it was hard to confirm their whereabouts. Anyway, they suddenly have irrefutable alibis. Um, they were released in November and December 2017. In the meantime, Muriel had also been arrested for questioning and had gone on a hunger strike to protest this. I think her arrest was basically to see if she would divulge any other details or go back to her original confession, but she didn't, and she was Mm. also released in December. A sad event happened in July 2017, uh, which is that Judge Lambert committed suicide most likely as a result of the latest attempts to solve this case, which must have brought back a lot of attention. I hadn't remembered that he committed suicide, so (laughs) now I feel bad for at the beginning (laughs) being like, this fucker has it coming, (laughs) and like totally like ragging on him. Yeah. Oh, poor guy. But I do feel bad that he killed himself. Yeah, I mean, it's never... You don't wish that kind of no. despair on anyone. Yeah. In his suicide note, he defended his choices and actions throughout the course of the investigation and reaffirmed that he believed Bernard Arroche to be innocent and that Christine was the murderer. Hmm. As of yet, there are no other leads, although investigators are still trying to solve the case. As more and more of the protagonists in this tragic family affair die, simply of old age, it seems unlikely that it will ever truly be solved. I can't see it being solved. It's not like there's anything... It's not like there's anything more to kind of go through. Well, like, the evidence is so botched as well that you can't... Yeah, it's not like we have DNA that later we can have tested now that technology has improved. There's nothing like that. To kind of mm. go on. It's all based off of people keeping this secrets and not giving it up, basically. Yeah. Or, and or as long like as they keep it analysis. to this. Yeah. Which is as long exactly as they keep either. that to their grave, then there's no way this case could be solved. Yeah. Which is unfortunate. It's very sad for Gregory and for his parents. Yeah. I mean, never like the idea of a sort of soul, as it were, that can't be at rest. Yeah, definitely. So that is the long and messy case of the murder of Gregory Villemin. Jean-Marie and Christine have never stopped in their quest to find out the truth about what happened to their boy and have remained loyal to one another and the memory of their child throughout all of the tribulations of this case and have gone on to have three other children. That's nice because you often hear that a relationship can't stay together after something so tragic. So it does say a lot about them that they were able to sort of stay together. I mean, Um, they stayed together throughout her being accused of his murder, throughout him being in prison. 
You yeah, know. It's, it shows how strong their relationship is because yeah. there are plenty of relationships that could never survive. Even yeah. the trauma of the loss, never mind the whole accusation things about yeah. her having done it. This case has gone on for such a long time and has so many elements that I didn't even really have the chance to touch on just because I wanted to prioritise key events. That um, if you'd like to know more about this case, I would recommend Patricia Touranchot's Grégory La Machination Familiale, which is an excellent book that goes into a lot of details about this case. And I also read La Voix Roque by Thibault Solano, which is written in a slightly lighter style. I don't know if these books have been translated into English, unfortunately, but there is the very good documentary that we've talked about quite a bit. Um, and Patricia Touranchot was also involved in the making of this, and it features oh, right. a lot of footage from the time, as well as interviews with journalists and lawyers and investigators who have worked on the case. Mm. So I think it's pretty good for anyone who wants to know more about this. So don't forget to connect with us on social media, on Instagram at a podcast about murder, on Twitter at about murder, on Facebook, a podcast about murder with no E, or you can send us an email at a podcast about murder at outlook.com. If you have any comments, thoughts, theories, we'd love to hear those in the comments. And if you've got a yeah. suggestion or a case you'd like to hear next season, then, you know, you can send us a little email. I don't know when we'll return, but... <laughs> <laughs> we will <laughs> like walking out into the mist like we don't know when we'll come back but we will be back <laughs> i'll be back <laughs> oh my god um no i'm not sure when we will be back because i've got some things to finish off um hopefully gonna graduate i mean i am gonna graduate i'm just not gonna physically graduate yeah <laughs> Because of everything. And you've got... You're doing a master's. Yes. Gotta get that under control first. Thank you for listening to this season. I hope you've enjoyed it. So hopefully see you next time. I mean, it will be some point throughout the summer, I would have thought. Yeah, I think so. Once the school year has sort of settled down. But if you're joining us now... Um, or you have joined us in the last few episodes this season, um, do consider going back, checking out yeah. some of the older ones if you're interested. Yeah. That's all I've got to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, that is all. So, yeah. Well, everyone, stay safe. Stay. Yep. Take care of yourselves. And that's I can't, I'm going to keep, keep, and that's that on that. <laughs> Ha <laughs> ha